I don't know. What do you think love means? I think love is when your heart's married. It makes me feel warm inside. When you give someone a hug when they're hurt. Love is something that people have in their hearts. I say that's what makes you special. I think love means God cares about us. I do not know. So I want to say hi to everybody in this room, uh, folks at all of our campuses, all around, uh, joining us online. So glad you're here, uh, especially for this message. And I want to start with a few basic questions, like if somebody were to ask you, why do you exist? What would you say? What is the purpose of your life? What kind of people as a church should we be producing? And how do we know if we're on track or not? Now, the writers of scriptures talk about this subject, the purpose of life, but of course, it's complex and subtle and pretty obscure. So I'll read a number of statements from the Bible. However, the Bible is an ancient, difficult to understand document. I'm not really optimistic this will clarify anything for anybody, but I'll give it a shot. Somebody asked Jesus one time how to live a good life, and his response was, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When he was telling his disciples how to live, he put it like this, a new command I give you, love one another. When he told them how they would be recognized as his followers, like what their signature characteristic would be, he put it like this, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One of those disciples was named John, and John later on wrote this, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then because John recognized this is a subtle, hard-to-understand point, he said it backwards. Whoever does not love does not know God. For, and then a profound and unprecedented idea in world thought, for God is love. Another disciple was Peter. Apparently, Peter saw things very differently from John because Peter wrote stuff like, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, on the other hand, you might know that a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, became a follower of Jesus after the resurrection, sometime after all the other disciples. And apparently, he didn't get the memo because he would write things like, make love your aim, or the goal of our instruction is love, or... And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I know, this is an incredibly complicated question. Real good minds disagree over it. A couple decades ago, a philosopher named Hugh Moorhead actually wrote 250 of the best-known intellectuals in the world and asked them all, what is the meaning of life? And he published the answers they sent to him in a book. Some of them said they just made an answer up out of thin air. Some of them said they had no idea. Several of the most brilliant minds in the world asked him to write them back if he found out what the answer was. However, based on statements like this one in the New Testament, do everything in love, if you had to give the Bible's answer to the question, what is the meaning of life in one single word, out loud, all together, with some passion for the brilliance of the answer, what would that one word be? Love. Love. 
Life is about love. It ain't rocket science. It's almost like God is saying, I know you have tiny little brains and very narrow little attention spans, so I'm going to give you just one word to answer more questions than you can imagine. What makes a church great? What does the devil hate? What do you look for in a mate? What do you hope for on a date? What does a child await? What is impossible to overrate? What drives people to procreate? What is humanity's ultimate fate? Love, 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 over and over. The whole Bible is about love. Life is about love. Our church is about love. Existence is about love. Spiritual maturity is measured by love. The gauge of a life well lived is love. This weekend, we begin a study on the most important topic in the world. It is it's life or death to you and to me, although our world doesn't tell us this. The Bay Area in which we live that prizes achievement and advancement and success does not tell us this. We begin a study of the most influential words about love written in the history of the human race 2,000 years ago now. And they're from Paul's first letter to a church at Corinth, and they occupied the 13th chapter. And I want to say a, a word about the context of this chapter because it matters immensely to how we think about love and how we practice it. It is not a sentimental or romantic or hallmark card view of it. 1 Corinthians 13 is sometimes called the love chapter. It has been read at more weddings than any other words. How many of you have ever been to a wedding where at least part of 1 Corinthians 13 got read? Okay, almost a vast majority of us here. Now, um, it's not like what happened is Paul thought to himself, what, what happened is Corinth, the church, is a mess. And chapter 12 is all about conflict and people showing off and pride and arrogance and, and unresolved fighting in the church and quarreling. And then chapter 14 is about precisely the same stuff, just a mess. And then in the middle is chapter 13. It is not like what happened as Paul thought to himself, you know, I really should write something Christians could use at their wedding ceremonies in California someday, so I'll just wedge that right in here. This is not a wedding passage. In fact, probably nobody needs these words less than a couple getting married on their wedding day. This is written to messy, difficult people who are surrounded by messy, difficult people and have created a messy, difficult, chaotic, unpleasant church. And everybody has been following what we all tend to do by default, the way of ego and self and resentment and bitterness and envy and comparison and self-seeking. So Paul writes these amazing words, and now I will show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm only a clanging gong or resounding cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to the flames, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Doesn't matter how much I know. Doesn't matter how much I have. There's a game show on TV called Jeopardy. Anybody here ever watch Jeopardy? And it's got a champion right now by the name of James. Guy has won like $6 trillion. The smartest guy I have ever seen. I was on Jeopardy one time a long time ago. I came in on Jeopardy third place out of three people. <laughs> 30 years later, one of my kids was on Jeopardy. 
and came in third place out of three people. Nancy and I watch this show every night. James like our hero. But Paul says, you can be the smartest guy in the world. You can win everything. You can have it all. And if you don't have love, in other words, I can have everything, do everything, know everything, win everything. But without love, is nothing. In other words, everything minus love is nothing. Love plus nothing is everything. That's what Paul is saying in the opening words of this chapter. And he goes on to give love its greatest description. It is full of very powerful, very penetrating ideas that we're going to unpack a week at a time. And I hope you read these words every day during this series. That's what I'm doing. And I think it's a really good idea to live in it enough that you actually memorize these words so that you can marinate in them every day. And, and, and then, you know, when you're stuck in the post office and you forget to bring your cell phone, you don't have to be bored. You can actually think these wonderful thoughts. But for this beginning message, I wanted to define love through a story because we live in a great story and it's supposed to be a love story. And a friend of mine told me about an amazing love story, best-selling book uh, by an author named Mark Lukács that starts out almost like a Hollywood romance and, and then takes this very dramatic turn into the pain of mental illness and suffering love. And it is real and raw and messy. It's called My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward. And it was so powerful, we asked Mark if he would be willing to come and tell his story here and he said yes. This book has touched huge numbers of people, got glowing reviews like in the New York Times, and he's talked about it, TED Talks, in every setting that you can imagine, but this is the very first time Mark has told their story in a Presbyterian church, and it takes a lot of grace and courage to do that. And so would you make him feel really at home? Mark, come on up, and would you let him know how welcome he is here? Hey, Mark. Yeah. Morning, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for having me here. Um, what I want to talk about is how my understanding of love and the behaviors of love has evolved over the course of my relationship with my wife, Julia. Um, I actually heard about Julia before I met her. I had been at college for one hour, and already the guys on my floor were saying, so there's this girl from Italy who's in our year, and I was like, ooh. And I think already then I was a little bit in love with her, you know? And so then when I met her a few days later, I was incredibly intimidated. So I thought, I'm never gonna have the courage to actually talk to this person. I'm just gonna have a crush from afar. So I actually, as John said, I took a page out of Hollywood. There was a movie at the time called Life is Beautiful. It's an Italian movie, maybe some of you have seen it. And the, the guy, in order to seduce his love interest, whenever he sees her, he always yells out, buongiorno principessa, which means good morning princess. So I was like, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so wherever I saw Julia on campus, no matter how inappropriate the context, I yelled out to her, buongiorno principessa. And um, fortunately, she smiled back in return. And so we met at a party after a month, and we hit it off. 
And we started dating. And by the first winter break, we were already talking about where we were going to live after college, how many kids we were going to have. Um, we got married two years after graduating. And we got married in the Catholic Church where they write your vows for you. So the night before, I actually wrote a letter to Julia because I wanted to tell her what I wanted our marriage to be like, what love meant to me, how I was going to show her love. And basically, I said, look, let's be honest here. There's a lot of boring moments in life. You got to wait in line at the bank. You got to do the dishes. My promise to you is to try to make those moments as fun as they possibly can be. I want our life together to feel enjoyable, which is ridiculously naive, right? First off, no one goes to banks anymore. We have phones for that. But more importantly, my definition of what the behavior of love was involved, it's centered around joy and fun. And I still believe that those are really important criteria of love, but they're not the be-all, end-all. That was the, my promise when I was 23 years old and had no idea what I was talking about. So the day after we got married, we got on a plane and moved to California because what's more fun than that? And things were going wonderfully. But then after living out here for three years, Julia started a new job. And Julia has basically had a perfect GPA since she was born and has glowing work reviews all the time. And so she came home from that first day and I asked her how work went and she had this pause. She said, it was good. Yeah, yeah, it was a good day. And I had never seen her have insecurity around work before. And that pause, that insecurity was the seed that very rapidly grew into something that completely upended our lives. Uh, it started with her not being able to get simple tasks done at work, just like write emails. She just would sort of stare at her computer all day. And then at home, she wasn't interested in food. I'd make these meals. She just would kind of poke at them and not actually eat anything. And then it was difficult for her to fall asleep at night. And then eventually, she just stopped sleeping at night because she couldn't. Her mind just kept racing with worry. And one morning, about six weeks after that first day of work, I woke up, and she was pacing the room. She hadn't slept a wink. And she said, I talked to God last night, Mark, which is out of character for her to say something like that. Although we were raised religious for her to actually feel like she had a conversation, that made me worried. But at least it was a positive message. She said, God told me everything's gonna be okay. I don't have to worry, it's all gonna go away soon. But then a few days later when I woke up and she was pacing, she said, I talked to the devil last night. And the devil said, it's not gonna be okay. And I'm not worth helping or saving. So you just need to let me go away and be gone. And so in a panic, I took her to the emergency room and I started to act out a second type of love, which is the protective bear hug, fighting for the people that you care about who are sick and need our help. And so I visited her every visiting hour. I called the hospital pretty much every hour to get updates. I researched constantly. She ended up being admitted for 23 days, which is a pretty long time to be involuntarily held in a psychiatric facility. They said she was psychotic. I didn't even know what that meant. But basically, it means you're experiencing delusions. 
you're really paranoid. Sometimes she might be happy to see me. Sometimes she was scared to see me. And then after 23 days, they sent her home. And at this point, she was heavily medicated. And although she was no longer psychotic, she was now deeply depressed and often, almost exclusively, talking about suicide. And so I just kept giving her that bear hug, right? I was like, all right, we're gonna make fulfilling days. I took a huge amount of time off work. I signed us up for yoga and art classes and like we walked the dog. And anytime she'd tell me how scared or sad she was, I was like a fire extinguisher. I was like, but you don't have to worry. We have this beautiful life together. It's all gonna come back. Don't worry about it. And she was so meticulous with her thinking around suicide. One day she asked me, um, Mark, I, I don't quite know what to do with the Vespa key. I was like, what are you talking about? Because we had a Vespa, we lived in the city. She's like, so when I take the Vespa to the Golden Gate Bridge to jump off, I don't know what to do with the key because we only have one key. And if I bring it with me, they might not find my body and you'll lose the key to the scooter. But if I leave the key with the scooter, someone might steal the scooter and I don't want you to lose the scooter, you know? I mean, just think about that. The person you wanna spend the rest of your life with not knowing to do with a scooter key when they end their life. So I wrapped her in that bear hug again. No, honey, you're not gonna go to the bridge. It's gonna be okay. And then I had an epiphany. And honestly, the epiphany was brought on by sheer exhaustion about what another form of loving someone. When it was maybe the 50th time Julia brought up how she wanted to end her life, and I was just so exhausted by trying to convince her not to, I just sat there and I listened to her and I listened to her pain and I didn't tell her not to feel scared. I didn't tell her not to be sad. I just let her feel those feelings and I heard her and I was with her so I knew she was safe. I knew she couldn't actually do anything but I learned that one of the most demanding but ultimately important acts of love that we can do for each other is to just listen to each other. That's so hard. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of you like me are problem solvers, right? You want like a nine point plan of how to fix something. But throw out the plan sometimes. Just sit back with the person, be present, hear them, take it in. After that conversation, it was the first time Julia talked about suicide where she told me she felt better after we had talked. And so, in, to kind of wrap up where we are today, Julia was sick for about a year. She was psychotic for about a month. She was suicidally depressed for about 10 months. This illness took away a year from us. And then just as quickly as she got sick, she got better. They found the right medication and all of a sudden the Julia that I knew was back. And so we thought, all right, great. Let's go back to the life that we always wanted. Let's go back to work. Let's try to have children together. And we did. We had a little boy and then unfortunately when Julia was five months old, I'm sorry, when Jonas was five months old and when Julia returned from maternity leave, she lasted at work for two weeks and then was back in the hospital with her second psychotic episode. 
This time she was hospitalized for 33 days. And then two years after that, when Jonas was two and a half years old, she had her third psychotic episode. And so now we know as a family that this is part of our life forever. Julia's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. That's a chronic condition. That means that we always have to recognize that this may come back into our lives. But I say this with complete confidence. We're not as afraid as we used to be about this. And I think the reason we're not is because we've broadened our understanding of what love is. Yeah, of course we try to still have fun together as a family and as a couple. But we know that what we need to do in order to make this, that we can still have the dreams that we want and still achieve those dreams, is that at the core, we need to be listening to each other. And so actually, her third episode was four and a half years ago. We feel in many ways like this illness, although it still could come back, is much more in control. So much so that as this next picture will show you, we have a second child, a little boy who's actually almost 14 months old now. Julia did not have a relapse when he was born. She hasn't had to stop working. And I think I often sit here and I think with so much gratitude, why? Because I know there are so many mental illness stories that don't end like this and ours isn't over. I still don't know what the next 10, 15, 20 years may hold. But why do I get to be a guy who sits here and talks to you knowing that at least for now we've made it through? And it's that four letter answer, love. Because I think we as a family have grown that understanding. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for letting me share. And I really hope you have a wonderful month reflecting on what love means to you. Thank you. just holy ground, isn't it? Uh, every Sunday morning before I come to church, I talk to a guy who has been my best friend since we were 14. And we grew up together in Rockford, Illinois, and, and his dad was in and out of uh, psych wards in VA hospitals with bipolar disorder. And uh, Chuck grew up in the church, but you kind of didn't talk about stuff like that in that church then. I was thinking, looking at that picture of that family with beautiful mom and dad and two little boys. And if you saw that picture posted on Facebook, you'd think, boy, that family's got it all together. I wish my family, you know, And everybody you see fights a battle that you do not see. Everybody does. So many people here in this room, uh, you know what it is, or somebody you love know what it is. Depression, uh, deep anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder that's just killing you, an addiction that you can't get out of, autism, dementia, 
deep shame. And I'm so glad you're here today. This is in our broader society, Mental Health Awareness Month, and part of what we're committed to as a church is just to destigmatize emotional health issues and to be a place where it's open and where fellowship and uh, medication and therapy and prayer, all of God's gifts that can be embraced for healing get embraced. Uh, at this campus, we have a mental health support group. And if you or, or for, for folks that wrestle with those issues or people that care for them, we're just about love. And, and part of what struck me listening to Mark's story is love is so powerful and can suffer so deeply. Nothing suffers like love. That's part of what we'll talk about in this series. A few weeks ago, uh, our oldest daughter, Laura, uh, who has a child just about the same age as your youngest one and is even cuter, um, uh, talked about uh, her experience of anxiety and faith and pain. And she had just given a version of that talk at a conference here in the Bay with a friend of hers, uh, Rachel Held Evans. And just a month ago, Rachel's an amazing Christian writer and thinker, and a couple of days later, had an infection, pretty simple thing, and then had her body respond to the antibiotics in a strange way, and they had to put her into a coma, and Laura called us up crying yesterday because Rachel died yesterday morning. And now there's little family, you know. Love does not paint the story that we always want. But the Bible tells us we're in a story where love one day will redeem all suffering, even death. And what is at the heart of this love story of God for his world is just a real simple word. The, the most famous verse in the most famous book ever written, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And that pain that we see in a psych ward or in a hospital bed is finally all summed up on a cross. And because of that, somehow, when pain and suffering get shared in love, they become redemptive and they heal and they touch us in ways that have staggering beauty. So I'm asking everybody who's part of our church to make your serious primary aim for your life just love. And we're taking kind of a booster shot at that over the next five weeks in this series where I ask God, God, would you help me become a more loving person? Now, it's not just enough to talk about the beauty of love or hear some other stories. You have to roll up your sleeves and get to work on it because there's a role for us to play. I have to ask God's help, but I got to do something. Where do I start? Jesus said, love your enemies. Another famous love statement in the Bible. Start with the most difficult, unlovable, hard to be around, obnoxious person in your life. Maybe they're sitting right next to you in this service right now. Just put an arm around their shoulder right now. And no, don't do that. Do not do that. Uh, actually, loving enemies is kind of graduate level work, and we want to work our way up to it, but we don't start there. Jesus friend John was called the beloved disciple, and he was so loved by Jesus that in his letters, 
John talks more about love than anybody else. Everybody in the New Testament talks a ton about love. John the most. And this was a foundational discovery. We loved because he first loved us. We love because. It's amazing to think 2,000 years ago in an ancient world that we often think about as stiff or cold. How many times did Jesus say to his friend John, I love you. Hey, John, you're my friend. Makes me happy to see you. I love you, John. And I wonder sometimes how did John respond? Did he ever look away? Did he ever get embarrassed? It's a strange thing. Sometimes for us, it can be difficult to just sit and receive love. I was thinking when Mark was telling his story, there's a, a wonderful Scottish Christian writer from a century or two ago, George MacDonald, and he loved to write about princes and princesses. And somebody asked him, why do you always love to write about them? And he said, well, a prince or a princess is a child of the king. See, that's all of our story. Bongiorno, princessa. No, princessa isn't right. What's the word? Principessa. Uh, I think of a little picture sometimes that helps me just receive love from God. I remember one time going into the room of one of our children, small child, one of our most rebunctious and strong-willed, just like their mother children. Uh, <laughs> they were fast asleep, and you know how you can look at them when they're sleeping, and they're so peaceful and so vulnerable, and you're flooded with so much tenderness towards them, it's like you can't imagine ever being mad at them. Then they wake up, and you can't imagine. <laughs> but as I stood there watching and thinking what a miracle this little body was, and how I got to be the dad of this little body. And this thought came that what I'm experiencing right now, watching this little child is just an echo of what the one who made me experiences when he watches over me. Greetings, prince. Greetings, princess. You're a child of the king. So I think of my father looking down from heaven on me and just try to go through my day. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me. I know I'm inadequate. Thank you. And then, uh, as we receive love, the most excellent way is simply to aim at loving other people. Real simple. Don't need education. Don't need money. Don't need a resume. Don't need a title. Doesn't matter. This, this Possibility lies before you. This is life in the kingdom of God. This is the most excellent way of the kingdom. People go through life and we get all torn up over, man, I wanted to do this and I wanted to achieve that and how come I couldn't climb here? Love is available to you. You can love. Here's a real simple way. Uh, get out a piece of paper. Do this on your cell phone or computer if you want to. This is what I have been working on. Write down one positive characteristic about yourself. This will help you be grateful to God for His love. And then one positive characteristic about one other person. Write it down. Could be their helpful attitude or their sense of humor or how smart they are or that they're somebody that's really helpful or you just like to be around them. Could be anything. And then when you're with them, look them right in the eye. Notice them. Notice their face and their body language. Listen to them and ask God for a sense of gratitude and admiration and then just express it to them in a real simple, honest way. I came in on a Monday to start doing this 
And I was going to space out all three during the day, one early in the morning and one middle of the day, and then one later on at the end of the day. I did it with the first person, just really paid attention and spoke admiration into him. And by the time I was done, he had a big smile on his face, and he was standing taller, and his shoulders were squared, and he was more alive. And it was so much fun. I couldn't wait until lunchtime to do it again. I just did it with the very next person I saw. Same thing. I think it was helpful to her, but I was having so much fun. I went back to my office, and in a little while, I heard a group of people talking outside my office. So I immediately went out and blessed all four people at once. The amazing thing was, I was trying to love other people, but I was the one getting happier. I wasn't worried about what I had to do. I wasn't preoccupied with solving problems or answering questions. I was just enjoying trying to love people. Nancy called, and I was so excited about this, I told her all about it. And then there was silence, and I realized she was waiting for me to love her. (laughs) And I explained I'd already loved my quota for the day, and I didn't want to overshoot, but I'd get around to her tomorrow. The reason that you want to get started now is that it goes by real fast, this life, see? And, and, and you don't want to wait. Because you're going to end up being one of two people. Sometimes when we think about heaven or hell, we think primarily about a location someplace and what the conditions of it will be like. But the primary reality about the idea of Uh, An eternal life, an eternal being is not so much uh, location, it's, it's transformation. Who do you become? So imagine two people. One person was just an outrageous giver and receiver of love. He made people feel cared for and welcome. He listened, really listened. And at work, people sought out his cubicle to celebrate when they won or mourn when they lost or get help when they were confused. At home, he was just the real deal. When he was wrong, he wouldn't get defensive. He'd just confess and apologize. When he got hurt, he would forgive instead of holding grudges. He had kind of a knack for serving and helping. He could confront you real honestly but stay connected with you. Other than that, he didn't have much of a life. Never had much money. Lived in a little place. Had a short little resume. Wasn't famous at all. Just had deep, abiding, life-changing, joy-producing, other-centered, God-rooted, hope-giving, life-giving love. The other person, thoroughly unloving. He was well-known for being a jerk at work, always looked out for number one, always reflexively self-promotional, prided himself, actually, on always getting even if anybody had heard him. Uh, His spouses became exes. His children were embittered. His colleagues felt betrayed. His friends felt deceived. He was a selfish, arrogant, isolated, hidden, materialistic, narcissistic egomaniac. But other than that, he had a great life. Outside from utterly flunking love, He's brilliant at the other stuff. Which would you choose? And Jesus would say, choose love. And John would say, and Peter would say, and Paul would say, and Mary would say, 
It's the only reason we're here. Not about buildings or programs. Not about getting people to recite the right beliefs. This I believe to my core. No one who succeeds at love fails at life. And nobody who fails at love succeeds at life. This is the reality of the kingdom in our midst. So, let's get after it. Every day. Over these next five weeks. Don't miss one. Engage. Go online if you're traveling. Keep up. Do it with your life group. Get the stuff online. What matters in life is love. Let's pray. And maybe you're sitting next to somebody who really does just need a touch of love. And if you want to, you don't have to, but if you want to just take their hand or put a hand on their back or just let them know, however, that they're a child of the King. No matter how inadequate or messed up they might seem, God, thank you that you come to us every morning when we wake up and say, good morning, princess. Good morning, prince. You're a child of the king. I pray for especially everybody with a breaking, suffering heart. Pray for people who desperately want to be loved but feel so alone or people who want so much to give love and feel rejected. I pray, God, I pray that by some miracle you would make the reality of your love for us so powerful that nobody would walk out of this room today without knowing that they are loved by you. And I pray that you would grow us up as a church together in this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.